You're listening to A Conduit's Diary. This is a podcast about me, Rachel, and my experiences as I investigate paranormal activity as a conduit. This is rated R for explicit because I do have a little bit of a foul mouth. Thanks for listening, and be sure to subscribe and rate this podcast wherever you listen to it. Happy New Year, and welcome to Season 3. I honestly didn't expect this to get as popular as it has over the last few weeks. I appreciate everyone who shared, liked, commented. It's pretty cool. Without much ado, I'll get into the first episode of Season 3, Episode 27, The Unmarked Grave. For once, Harry didn't show up at my townhome with his foul-smelling coffee and his stupid visor shades. For once, he gave me space and called me on my phone instead. And, for once, it wasn't at some ungodly hour. What are you doing? he asked once I answered. Hello to you too, I replied. I was doing absolutely nothing, just lounging in that weird space between Christmas and New Year's where time doesn't really exist. The rescue was empty due to a wildly successful TikTok campaign by one of our volunteers, who labeled herself as a social media manager. Since neither Rosa nor I understood what that meant in the slightest, we let her do it. The result? Some of our long-term residents went viral, and the rescue was down to the absolute barest of bones for the holidays. Of course, the unwanted Christmas dogs would come soon, so... I was cautiously optimistic. Let me guess, in your pajamas watching reality TV? He asked. Joke's on him. I don't have cable. And my Netflix account was stolen at best. The pajama part, though, he wasn't far off. Do you need something, or are you just sad and alone during the holidays? I meant it as a joke, but beat of silence on his line was a bit too long. Whoops. I guess the holiday spirit wasn't alive and well in me. He cleared his throat after the too long silence. <clears throat> Whatever. I sent you an address. We need you here ASAP. The address was in the middle of what was once nowhere. If you ask someone, where do you live? And they say Phoenix, it tells you absolutely nothing. Phoenix is the name of a giant space in the center of Arizona that encompasses 30 or so towns and cities. Phoenix includes a breadth of land that can take up to two hours to get across. So when I'm telling you I'm on the outskirts of Phoenix in the middle of the fucking desert, I could be talking about any number of places. Right now, though, it was Florence. Florence was popping off. Since everyone was remote now, they could move to where the land was cheap and cheaper than Phoenix's astronomical prices, and build a house for a quarter of a price in the valley. The great influx of people led to actual lotteries for land in tiny little developments with no backyard. I was quickly approaching one of those developments some 45 minutes south of my own home in Phoenix. I followed the signs for a development that read, from the mid-200s, with an arrow to the undeveloped space. It didn't take long to navigate the partially paved streets of the subdivision and find the police cars and Harry's ugly truck. As usual, he was sneering at the police officers, who were sneering back, and eyeing him up like a pariah. At least we had that in common. I popped out of my car and headed to Harry, pausing at the threshold of the property. 
a wave of nausea swept over me, and I shook my head to clear myself of it. I hadn't eaten lunch, and my breakfast was made up of a burrito from the food truck at the end of my street. I should make a New Year's resolution to eat something green once a day? Once a day. This is your expert, scoffed the police officer. He was looking at me with open scorn. Usually I'm not prickly with new people, but I felt what little patience I was born with slip away. How does it work? You call upon the voodoo goddess spirits, he added. No, it's more like psych. I catch things that people are too stupid to see themselves. I gave him the once over with my eyes before looking to Harry. What's up? I asked. The corner of Harry's mouth ticked a smile before he nodded to the taped off area. Contractors found human remains when digging this morning, he said. We stopped short at the edge of the gravesite and my stomach lurched. Skeletal remains, at least five of them, were laid out by a crew on the edge of a hole meant to be a home. We didn't know if they were Indian or not, so we called you, he said. I raised my eyebrows and looked between the two of them. Why would you call me to determine that? I'm not a native. They exchanged glances. If this is a native burial site, there's like codes and protocols. I don't know anything about that. Plus, they can look at the site and how they were buried. Shouldn't you have done that before you dug them up? Doesn't this make this entire site like special grounds? Fuck, hissed the police officer between his teeth, turning to pull out his phone. Harry no longer looked amused. Are you telling me you won't help? He asked. I raised my hands. Don't come at me because they didn't use proper protocol. All I'm saying is if this ends up being a native burial ground or something else similar to that, you're on your own. I'm not the expert. It's not my field. Harry turned to follow the police officer, muttering something about not being an expert at anything. I watched them walk back to their cars and start arguing, exhaling a breath. It was colder out here with no buildings to block the winter wind. I pulled my jacket around me, simultaneously hating the cold and not missing the oppressive summer. Another breeze tickled the back of my neck, making me turn to look over at the grave. At the edges of the grave stood a woman who stared at me, her eyes insistent. The feeling of nausea swept over me again, and I knew exactly what type of grave this was. She watched me as I ducked under the tape and walked toward the dirt lot to stand next to her. She didn't turn to look at me then, just stared down at the hole. Before I could say anything to her, she disappeared, and I was left staring down at the skeleton below me. Careful not to disturb the potential crime scene, I knelt at the edge, looking down at the remains. I tried to remember a single episode of Bones and how she identified gender and age on site, but I knew better. I barely had a Bachelor of Arts in Psychology. Who was I kidding? My fingers reached out to touch the sand around the remains when the arm jerked up and the fingers of the skeleton closed around my wrist. I was pulled down instantly, but not physically, mentally. One minute I was staring down at the ground, and the next I was swimming through time and space. When I landed, I, I wasn't me. I was someone else. In front of me stood a man. He had the hideous mustache that was so popular in the early 90s, wearing a denim jacket with denim jeans and a smug smile. He leaned forward to flick my breast. No, wait, my name tag, which sat over my breast. Bethany, he read as he did so. I felt my inside sour and I physically recoiled. Yet, I knew I was smiling that tight-lipped smile everyone in customer service did. How can I help you, sir? I said. 
But it wasn't my voice. It was too young, too fresh. I caught my reflection from the corner of my eye and saw that I couldn't be more than 19. My hair was long and brown and straight, reaching my mid-back. I wore a red shirt with a collar and loose denim jeans. Yeah, clearly the 90s. I'll take $6 on five, he said, nodding his head to the pump across the parking lot. It was dark and no one was there except his car. I knew that my car, Bethany's car, was behind the gas station and employee parking. I knew I was alone with no one else working except me. I knew I worked a night job to pay for school. I knew these things as if they were about me, but really they were fleeting thoughts. Memories of who I was now, of whose eyes I was looking through. Sure, I said, extending my hand to collect the money from the man. It was rolled up sweaty cash and I cringed again, placing it in the register. He walked out of the gas station and I exhaled, relieved he was gone. The occasional creep wandered through the gas station, but none were usually so gross. When the bell over the door chimed again, I jumped, surprised to see him peering into the gas station. Why wasn't he gone? A little help, honey? I think the pump is jammed. Well, what am I supposed to do about it? I thought. The thin-lipped smile returned as I grabbed a flashlight from behind the register and nodded. Sure thing, I said, following him to the pump. I frowned at it. It didn't look broken. The handle for the pump was still in the machine. Then, it went dark. I was back at the gravesite, except now my eyes were blurry. Tears, I realized, using the back of my hands to wipe them away. I looked up to see one of the crew excavating the site staring at me with wide eyes. It grabbed you, he whispered. I straightened and wiped the dirt off my knees. At some point I'd fallen forward onto them. No, I just fell, I said. The man shook his head vehemently, his eyes darting from the skeleton to me. No, I saw it. It reached up and grabbed you. He was pointing at my exposed wrist, at the perfect lines of dirt, like fingers. By now, Harry was done yelling with, or at, the police officer, and was at my side. What's going on? he asked. He was talking to me, but the crew member spoke instead. The skeleton grabbed her, he repeated. Harry raised his eyebrows and looked between the two of us. I just fell and caught myself. It probably looked like it from that angle, I repeated. Harry's eyebrows rose as he continued to stare. I see. Well, we called the local tribe. They said there's no reason for anything to be in this area, but they'll send someone tomorrow. It's a gravesite, I said quietly, trying to turn away from the tech. He was still staring in obvious shock. Of course it is. It's a bunch of dead bodies. What else would you call that? No, you don't understand, I pressed, grabbing his arm to pull him to the side. The lab tech was scrambling out of the hole to try and follow me. That body there, it's a woman named Bethany. She was taken from a gas station, late 80s, early 90s. She was young, 19, I think. I ran my hand through my hair. There was a man. He creeped her out. He lured her to the pump. Whoa, 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 whoa. Slow down, Harry said, his brow furrowing. You saw all that? He asked. I nodded, swallowing hard. The nausea was now sitting deep in my stomach and drawing me back to the pit. It had to show me more. They had to show me more. And you saw all that from what? A touch? He asked. I nodded. I've been working with my mother. I've been learning to expand my reach or whatever. Your mother could never do this, he said, watching me carefully. Of course she could. She showed me how, I said, rolling my eyes. My gaze snapped back to the pit, 
the nausea rising again. Look, I can give you more, just let me go, I said. My voice sounded distant, like it was coming through a long hallway. When I looked up again, I was at the edge of the pit, circling it to get to the next body. Hey, wait, said the tech, the same one who stared at me with wide eyes. I was kneeling next to a different body, and my eyes met his just as I fell under again. This time it was day. The sun was blazing, a typical hot Arizona afternoon. I could feel the sweat stick to my clothes, the back of my neck. My t-shirt was plastered to my chest, my flat chest. I was a man this time, elderly. The backs of my arms were bruised and sinewy. I was walking to the corner store to fill a prescription because my stupid roommate forgot to pick mine up earlier that afternoon. I didn't have a car. They took my damn license when I was diagnosed with whatever the hell they called my disease. The walker in my hands was hot metal from the sun, burning my palms as I wiped my sweat on my pants. Even that small movement allowed enough sun to heat the metal, reigniting the pain in my hands. The backs of my arms were tanned from years working in the sun, but the skin was thinner now. Everything was on fire. Across the street stood the lab tech, who watched the scene unfold with a pale face. It was only two miles. I didn't understand why it was taking so long. Why it was so painful. When I looked up, I realized I had no idea where I was. I didn't recognize the street names. I didn't recognize the buildings. The sun was dipping low in the sky now, nearing the horizon. I left at noon. How was it nearly nighttime already? It was just a few minutes ago. I turned as I heard a honking. A nice car pulled up to me, a Celica, one of the newer models. It was a red two-door, and it looked snazzy. I may not know where I was, but I could recognize a car anywhere. The tinted window rolled down as the car pulled up next to me. Inside was a young man, maybe in his 30s, with a thick mustache and brown eyes. Sir, are you okay? He asked me. He seemed concerned. Yes, I'm just walking to the store to get my medications, I said. My voice was hoarse, dry from dehydration. My vision swam a bit, and I put more weight on my walker. The man parked his car alongside of the road and jumped out, instantly coming to my side. How long have you been out here? He asked. His hands were cold from his air conditioning. Oh, not long. I just left at noon. It's just two miles down the road, I said. Here, let me drive you the rest of the way, he offered. He was leading me, pushing me, into the car. He took my walker and collapsed it in the trunk after settling me in the front seat. So what's your name? He asked as he put the car in drive. Howard. Howard Penny, I said. Nice to meet you, Howard. I'm Gary. I'll get you home. What a nice young man, I thought. It wasn't until 20 or minutes later, as the sun really started to disappear along the horizon, that I realized I'd never told him where I lived. I was above water again, the wave of nausea passing. But it wasn't enough. I was compelled. I was possessed. I had to touch them all. I had to know every story. I heard the choke sob of the tech as he fell to his knees across the hole, rocking his head in his hands. I was there. I was there, he said, shaking his head. Another tech approached him cautiously, reaching out to touch his shoulders. There were more bodies to touch. I was aware of Harry through it all. He was just a step away, watching. The police officer was too, his eyes wide. I don't know what they saw, 
but I knew what I was seeing. A middle-aged mom at a grocery store and a pushy man who insisted on helping her to her car. She was number three. A sex worker who approached Gary. When she demanded payment, he strangled her. She was the first, the one who ignited the sensation deep in his bones. She was buried with more reverence than the others. The next was a crossing guard in his neighborhood. He always seemed to stop traffic just as Gary was trying to get to work. He made him late, one too many times, so he killed him. That was victim number two, and it didn't feel the same as the first. Close, but not enough. I saw him come back to the site time and time again, even as he wasn't able to kill. He'd hurt himself somehow. Bethany. Bethany, she'd gotten a swing in. Permanent nerve damage, they said. I saw his atrophied arm tight against his body as he drove out here year after year after year. His name is Gary, I said at last, my eyes turning to Harry. He was watching me carefully like I may explode or vomit or both. I felt like I was on the verge of both of them, like some sickness sat under my skin and threatened to break to the surface. If I could just sweat it out, if I could just sweat him out, that would be the last of it. Gary, got a last name? asked the police officer. I realized suddenly he was there too. The scorn was gone from his face, replaced with apprehension. It starts with an H. He lives in Queen Creek. His right arm has nerve damage from his last victim. I pointed to her bones as I explained, as I pointed out every victim. Their names, where they were taken, or as close as I could tell. Their ages, dates. That was harder. It was the early 90s, I was sure of that. The police officer wrote it all down and turned to his phone again, mumbling into the receiver. You okay to drive? Harry asked. There was an unnerving concern in his gaze that made me uncomfortable. Probably not. I need food. Is there even a restaurant near here? I asked. Of course there is. It's Arizona. There's an in and out at least a block away at all times. I could go for a root beer float, I said. It's on me, he replied. A Conduit's Diary is created by me, written and produced by me, mixed horribly and edited by me. Cover art created by BMC Design on Fiverr. Music, intro and outro created by Chris Hornberger.